Judges chapter 2, beginning at verse 10, page 213 in your Red Pew Bibles. If you didn't bring a Bible of your own, should be a Red Pew Bible somewhere nearby that looks like this. If you want to turn to page 213, we'd like for everybody to be able to see the passage as it's being preached. Chapter 2, beginning at verse 10, going through 19. And all that the generation and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asheroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. And then the Lord raised up judges, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, and the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Caitlin. Thank you, thank you. Would you pray with me as we come to God's word together? Let's pray. Father, we pause before your perfect word that you tell us is alive, living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword and has the power to cut down all the way to the very core of who we are, that we might be changed from the inside out. Lord, we pray that you would send your spirit to use your word upon our hearts, that we would see Jesus, that we would be moved to worship him and to drop all the counterfeit gods in our life. Would you come and be our teacher this morning? In Christ's name we pray, amen. So kids, a question to get us started. I like to start with a question for kids to get them engaged here. Kids, have you ever had an experience in your life where maybe you were a little overconfident? You know, maybe you go into a situation and you think maybe you're a little, you know more than you think, than you, what you actually do, or maybe you're a little better at whatever sport it is, you know, and then sometimes you come in and you're overconfident in a situation, and then you're kind of introduced to reality. Have you ever had that experience? You know, sometimes it's with a test, you know, you go into a test and you feel like, hey, I'm ready, I know this stuff, and then you face reality, the hard reality in a test. And you're like, oh my goodness, I didn't know any of this stuff. Or you go into a game, maybe. 
Maybe you go into a game and you're like, oh, we're just going to, we're, we're going to walk away with this. And you play some team so much better than you and you face reality and you're like, oh my goodness. I wasn't nearly as good as I thought I was. You know, one of the challenges is that we're always kind of overestimating ourselves. You know, I have this reality. I had this reality yesterday whenever I played golf for the first time in like a year. I don't know if you ever played golf, but it's like the ultimate humiliation, which I don't know why we do this thing, right? My father-in-law said, oh, I love the game of golf right after a rough shot, you know, and I was like, amen. <laughs> you know, it, it's, I, the, with me and golf, I always have this in my mind. I feel like, man, I can do this. This is not that hard. I watch people do it. And I'm like, what? You, it's, a, it's a ball. You're swinging a club. It's no big deal. And I often have this idea that, like, if I just put a little bit of work in, like, I'd be really good. You know, I have that, that thought in my mind. And then I get out there and actually play, and I'm like, I'm terrible. And that was my experience yesterday. It's like getting introduced to reality, and reality can be hard. But one of the things that we've been talking about is about God's grace in bringing us face-to-face with reality in our life, especially in a spiritual reality. You know, it is very easy for us to be way overconfident and out of touch with where we really are with our spiritual life. It's very easy. It's very easy to have an over-realistic idea of just how spiritually healthy our hearts are. And we've been in a series, we just started a series in the book of Judges, that is really like a dose of reality for our hearts. The book of Judges is like smelling salts that just wakes you up from this delusion because it's very easy to think, man, I'm I'm just doing great. And often we're comparing ourselves to other people and we always find people that were maybe a little bit further ahead and we think, ah, you know, I'm good. I'm, I'm doing a good job. I'm really, you know, everything's good in my life. And then we come and we see in the book of Judges, we see God's people in a time of incredible decline, cultural decline, spiritual decline. And their tendency is to say the problem is outside of us. And God in the book of Judges is saying, no, 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 no. The problem is inside of you. And it's a grace in that God is inviting his people into repentance. So I think this is a great uh, book for us in this moment in time where our culture is in decline. And the tendency is to look out and find the reasons outside of us. It's the bad guys out there. That's why everything seems to be in decline. And yet God's word comes to us like a mirror and it says, no, 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 the problem is here, but there's hope in Christ. You know, in the book of Judges, we see the gospel. And now what do we always see the gospel tells us? Tells us two fundamental things. First off, relax, you're worse than you know. That's the book of Judges. We come into this book, if we will take an honest look, you know what you'll discover? We are far worse than we know. Sometimes we think, oh, I'm just there. If I just try a little bit harder, I'll I'll arrive. We're far worse than we know. But here's the good news. We're more loved and accepted in Christ than we could ever dare to dream at the same time. That's what we see in the book of Judges. So let's jump into our passage here. We're again in chapter 2, a little bit further ahead. We're starting in verse 10. And I want you to look at this here. And in verse 10, it makes a comment about a new generation. And now you see this as we go through the Old Testament, that sometimes there'll be a generation of God's people whose hearts are loyal to God, and that oftentimes their children don't fare so well. 
And that's what we're told here in this time of the judges. We're told in verse 10 that after that whole generation, and now that whole generation is talking about the generation under Joshua that had come, uh, led God's people into the promised land. And they came in and they had some tremendous victories. And their hearts were loyal to God as they began to move in and expel all of the nations from the promised land as God had given to them and called them to that place. But as that generation uh, died, a new generation rose and their hearts were not loyal to God. And we're told very clearly here in verse 10 that after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Now, this is not the main thing I want to focus on the passage, but I couldn't help but make this comment because I'm a parent. A number of us are parents in here or grandparents or will be parents. And so this is huge to see. You know, this, this generation that rose up, and by the way, we find ourselves in a time and place in our culture where the statistics of young people leaving the church, it's not pretty. It's not pretty. So we need, we, this is for us. But what we're told is this new generation that rose up, they did not know the Lord nor what he had done. Now, it does not mean that they didn't know about the Lord. They knew about. They didn't know him at a personal level. It didn't grab their hearts. They, they didn't personally know God. He did not begin to command their affections. They didn't fall in love with God. They didn't fall in love with what he had done. What he had done was just old stories. It wasn't something that impacted their heart. Now, that's critical for us to know as parents and as a church because we're all invested in the young people and the next generation rising up and actually following God. Now, here's the thing to know. The, the next generation is not going to be loyal to God just by telling them the facts of faith. It is by passing on our own passion for Jesus. That's it. You know, I find in our culture, so many people will choose to go to church simply for their children. And it's a big thing. I mean, one of the greatest church growth strategies is to have like a bang-up children's program. Right? Because why? Because everybody is going just for their children. I don't mean to, to, to put down any of those things. We as a church should be invested as a church in our children in teaching them. But do you know who is the most impactful teacher for your children? Is you as parents. Bar none. And the most important thing is not just that we teach facts, but that we love Jesus. It's not going to work just to take your kids to church if you're not in love with Jesus. It will not work. Because how it works is our children fall in love with what we fall in love with. Trust me, I've watched a Georgia game with my kids. <laughs> and I watched them with this same sickness I have of passion for the dogs. Where did they get that? Not because I sat down and said, okay, kids, here's what you got to know about Georgia. No, they just watched they're going to catch what captures our hearts. So the most important thing for us as parents is that we love Jesus. Bar none. Number one. That's all extra there. So let's move on. As we come into the passage, and what this passage is really showing us is it's introducing a pattern that will be played out throughout the book of Judges. It's laying out a pattern. 
This pattern that occurs actually 12 times in the book with 12 different judges. The judges were like leaders that God raised up to deliver his people. Now, here's how the pattern went. Israel would turn away from the Lord. And then God would be moved to anger and he would bring judgment on his people and he would bring uh, other nations to conquer them and to oppress them. And God's people in their misery and in uh, the, the harshness of the circumstances would cry out. Very rarely do they even repent. But they just cry out in misery. And God, when he hears the misery of the hearts of his people, he is moved to compassion because it's in his heart. He can't bear the suffering of his people. And so what does he do? He intervenes by raising up judges. And they come and they deliver God's people. And then guess what happens? After the judge dies, the cycle starts again. They turn from the Lord and go back to the idols of the nations. That is the pattern that he's showing us. It's kind of laying out in this passage where it's going to show us over and over and over. This is what we're going to be seeing as we go in the few week, in the next number of weeks as we're walking through the book of Judges. This is the pattern. So I want you to see it just really quick. Just see it in the passage. Look at verse 11. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. Verse 12. They forsook the Lord their God, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshiped various gods of the people around him. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served the Baal and the Ashtoreths. Now, one of the things to know about that, now you see at the heart of this is idolatry. That's at the heart of the whole problem of Israel. It's at the heart of the whole Old Testament, the propensity of God's people to run after and worship other gods. But he mentions two here that were prominently a problem for God's people. The Baals and the Ashtoreths. Now, Baal Baal was a Canaanite storm god. And the Ashtoreth was a Canaanite fertility god. Now, the way that it worked in that day is that everyone would have their own little form of that. I mean, maybe it was a statue that everybody would congregate around. But sometimes people would have their own little personal ones of that. And they would worship these idols. But you see, you say, well, that's weird. A storm god, fertility god, what's the big deal there? Well, in this day, what was the most important thing? It was an agrarian society. You, you had to have crops in order to survive. And that was security. It was your future. It was also power and wealth. Well, how do you have all of that? Well, you got to grow crops. And to grow crops, you got to have rain. you got to have storm, Right? And the problem is, you can't control that. So what do you do? You make an idol. You see, idols are all about control. They're all about a way to control your world. The fertility god, the the asterisks. Why? No, what's that weird thing? Why are they coming up with that? Well, in that day, fertility was an incredible challenge. I mean, it was a high infant mortality rate. It was incredibly hard to to conceive. And and for a nation to have lots of babies meant you were going to be a big nation, which meant you would have security. You would have power. You have prominence in the world. The larger nation was the more prominent one. So you see, at the heart of all of this is about security. It's about safety. It's about uh, identity. It's about Provision. It's about all of these things that ultimately we cannot do. <laughs> it's out of our hands. But there's a tendency to want to control our world. And idolatry is at the heart of that. 
So that's what they were doing. They were running after all of these other gods. And now, in the pagan world, those gods did not claim exclusivity. You could worship all kinds of gods. In fact, you would pick a god for whatever you needed at that particular time. But none of the gods demanded me alone. And that's the problem with God's people in idolatry. So we see then that God is moved to anger uh, and that he begins to bring uh, raiders who plundered them. In verse 14, he sold them to their enemies. God uh, brings judgment. He, he is provoked. He, he brings uh, discipline upon them. And then they find themselves at the end of verse 15 in great distress. Verse 16, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. That's what we see in the book of Judges. Judges were like military leaders. They were not spiritual leaders. But they were raised up that God used them to deliver his people out of oppression. But one of the things we see in the book of Judges is that their deliverance gets weaker and weaker and weaker. The the time of peace that is brought about by the judges is shorter and shorter and shorter. Overall, the book just shows us a slow decline in the people of God. So God raises up these judges that delivered them. Yet, verse 17, yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to the other gods. Verse 18, when the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge, saved them out of the hands of their enemies. As long as the judge lived, for the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under their oppressed and afflicted them. Verse 19, but when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than their fathers. Following other gods and serving and worshiping them, they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. So you see, we get, a, we get an overall kind of bird's eye view of this situation here. There is an inclination in the hearts of God's people to run after the idols of the nations. You see that in that pattern? It's like, it's like there's an autopilot in their heart. The moment that anything is lifted that is restraining that, they're just right back to it. And so God intervenes and he raises up a judge and he brings renewal to his people. But the moment that that fades, right back to it. It is a vivid picture of the brokenness of the hearts of the Israelites. But here's one of the things that we've, we talked about this last week. Judges is not just about those people, right? It'd be very easy to read this and be like, man, those Israelites were messed up. I'm so glad we're not like that. I hope that's not your reaction. Judges, as all the scripture, is meant to be like a mirror. When we look at the Israelites, we're looking into the mirror. It's an invitation of God to say, would you see it from my perspective? Would you just come into the light? Would would you let me shine a little light on the full reality of your wayward heart? You see, what we see in this picture here and in the picture of the judges is we see the full depth of the reality of our sin. Now, that's hard to see. And one of the reasons it's hard to see our own sin is that very naturally we think of sin as breaking rules, right? I think oftentimes we have a very simplistic view of sin. You know, it's just, you know, making a mistake here or there. I think that's often how we think of it. You know, I've got some things in my life. I'm kind of messing up in this area. And there, you know, God has these certain rules and some are kind of arbitrary or whatever. And yeah, I'm not perfect, but I break some of those rules. And we think primarily in terms of these breaking of rules. But what, what we see here is that it's far deeper than that. 
It's an inclination of the heart. It's a waywardness of the heart. It's a running after something in place of God. You know, verse 17 here is key because it shows us something really profound about God's perspective on idolatry. Look again at what it says in verse 17. It says, yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. Now, that's interesting that he would use that image and that concept to help us to understand idolatry. See, from God's perspective, when we put anything else in place of God as ultimate in our life, when we run after things in our life to bring control and security and life and meaning, when we do that, from God's perspective, it is a prostituting ourselves. What a vivid, what a vivid picture in the... Uh, Caitlin read a version that said that they went about whoring. I mean, the, the, the scripture wants to give us very provocative images for this. Now think for a minute about prostitution. What's happening with prostitution? Someone is giving away the most intimate parts of themselves to someone else for nothing in return. They're allowing themselves to be used. They're allowing someone to take the most precious parts of who they are for nothing in return. And that is the reality of idolatry. You see, the nature of God's relationship with us is that it's a covenant. Whenever God enters into relationship with people, He says, I give you myself. I bind myself to you. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. And you know what? You're going to do the same for me. That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to be in covenant with God. It's not just about making a profession. It's not just about believing the right things. When you come to Christ, at the essence of it is saying, you're going to be first in my heart. You're going to come before everything. I'm selling it all. I'm burning the ships. You have everything. I'm giving you my heart. You see, that's not just what God wants. It's what He demands. The deepest affections of our hearts. And He's not going to share us with anyone else. So from God's perspective, idolatry is spiritual adultery because God requires our hearts and our affections. You know, it's very easy in the Bible Belt to say, hey, Jesus is my Savior, but He's not my Lord. Right? And it's not hard to figure out who your Lord is, who the ruler of your life is. But it's very common to think, you know, I can pray a prayer, I can be saved, Jesus can be my Savior. Yeah, He's got all that taken care of. But you know, I'm the ruler of my life. It doesn't work that way. You can't have half Jesus. He is both Savior and Lord. And so when you come to Christ, you give everything. You give Him the very depths of your heart. And it's not only what He demands, it's what He longs for. So you see, what we got to understand is, the problem of idolatry is taking the passions of our heart and giving them to the things of this world. It's chasing after empty things. And the reality is, is that idols will always enslave us. They will never deliver. Idols are a lie. It's an attempt to control our world, but it doesn't work. They end up controlling and enslaving us. Now the question is, what's God's response to this? And we see throughout the passage, it's anger. He's provoked to anger. Now, whenever we see that, it can be very easy to misunderstand that. God's anger is not the anger of a taskmaster. 
It's not the anger of someone where you messed up a little bit here, you broke a rule here, and I'm just flying off the handle because I demand perfection. It's not the anger even of a judge who you've come before and is harsh and exacting in their judgments. It is the anger of a jealous lover. You see that throughout Scripture, that God portrays himself as our husband. And that whenever we run after created things and we give our hearts to them, we look to them for for meaning and satisfaction, we bring our passion to the things of this world, and yet to God, we are cold and stale before him. It's idolatry, and his heart is moved to jealous anger because he wants our hearts. He demands our affections. You know, anger is not the opposite of love. Indifference is. If God did not care, if he was not angry, that would be the opposite of love. In fact, anger is an expression of love. It always is. If you want to know what you love, look at what you get angry over. It's always an aspect. And so God's anger is a picture of the power and the passion of his love for our hearts and his determination. He will not share us. But there's a third thing to see. And it's that we've got to be rescued from this. You see that over and over as you watch the Israelites in this book. They can't change it. It's like autopilot in their hearts. Their hearts are bent on rebellion, are bent on running away from God. And so if they are to be rescued, rescue's got to come from the outside. It's got to be by grace. They got to have a deliverer. And that is what the book of Judges is all about. We need a deliverer. You know, it's not enough to say, all right, let me rile you up with willpower. Willpower does not work when you come to the affections of your heart. (laughs) Because those are always going to win out. They got to have a deliverer. But you know what the book of Judges shows us? The judges were inadequate deliverers. They couldn't do it. You know, God would raise up these leaders to rescue and deliver his people from oppression. But they could not set them free. They could not change their hearts. They could not bring them into a covenant-keeping relationship with God. They could not change their hearts. So you know what Judges is ultimately about? We need a king. Judges ain't going to work. We got to have a king. We got to have a ruler. When you get to the end of the book of Judges, we'll see it as we come later. There's this repeated refrain. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Israel had no king. That's kind of a description of our culture, is it not? Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. But the question is why? Why? Because we don't have a king. We need a king. But not just a human king. We need a covenant-keeping king. We need someone who can come and truly set us free. We need someone who can come and rescue us from the inclination of our hearts. We need someone who can change our hearts. You see, judges is all about Jesus. It's all about pointing us to Jesus and the gospel. He is that king. He is the one who has come and borne all of that judgment. You know, it's hard to look at the reality of idolatry because when you look at it and you start saying, all right, what does my heart fall in love with? What does it chase after? And how do I compare that to my response to God? It's terrifying to see because we begin to see, oh my gosh, my heart barely runs after God at all. And, and I'm so prone to run after all of these things. 
So what does it show us? I need rescue. And that is exactly what Jesus has come to do. He came to bear our judgment. All of the anger of God for our sin fell on Christ on the cross. He came and bore our judgment, all of it. Through union with Him, there is no condemnation for those those of us who are in Christ. He came to keep covenant in our place. He came to perfectly keep the law, not just as our example, but as our substitute. So that through union with Christ, we are actually seen before the Father as righteous. We have this standing before the Father of being His perfectly righteous sons and daughters all through the rescue of Jesus. And He actually, through the power of His Spirit, gives us new hearts. That's the ultimate hope of the Old Testament. You know, this this rescue has got to go internal. My people have got to have new hearts. And that's what God gives us through the rescue of Jesus. So ultimately our hope is that we need Christ. We need His continual daily rescue of our hearts. Now what do we do? What do we do if, if we begin to see how our hearts are just constantly running after all these things? If they're just constantly running away, what do we do? We repent and run to Jesus. It's just that never-ending, just repent and run to Jesus. You know, the way that idols work is you can't just go about rooting them out of your life. It doesn't work because, I mean, you could really focus and work really hard and take one out of your life, but what's going to happen? Another one's going to pop in there, right? They have to be displaced. You know, every parent knows this. Your kid's locked in on something you don't want them to have. What is the easiest trick in the world? Hey, you want a treat? You show them something they want more. Right? If they're locked in on something, hey, you want to watch a show? Works every time, right? It diverts them. It grabs their heart and moves it towards something that is more beautiful and enticing. See, that's what's going to happen in our hearts. The only way to expel and free us from idols is to worship Jesus. He's got to capture our hearts. He's got to get beautiful to us. So we've got to, you know, repentance is just seeing our idols. It's seeing the emptiness of them. It's seeing this doesn't work and it won't deliver. But it's turning in worship to Jesus and meditating on the beauty of who he is till our hearts begin to be captured. They've got, our idols have got to be displaced by something that is more beautiful. So let me stop there and just give us a few minutes to interact over this together If you're new here, we do this each week. We talk about the passage and how it impacts us. So let's hear from each other. How How does this strike you? How does it move you? How does it challenge you as we think about idolatry, as we think about the tendency of our hearts, as we think about the rescue and grace of Jesus in our life? Let's hear from each other. I think you made some really insightful points and statements about just a cultural uh, Christianity versus the reality in terms of our children. Our children are going to follow what they see. It has to be real. Mm -hmm. It's not just going to be about the form, but it really has to be about the substance. And one of the major aspects of finding that substance is finding, identifying and being honest with yourself about what your idols are. Yeah. It, you know, and it, 
in some ways, is probably some kind of takeoff or spinoff of, you know, the ones that Israel kept following after. They look a lot different, and we disguise them a lot better. Right. But cutting through those disguises, being honest about what those disguises are, you know, and asking God to reveal those to you. Yeah. And for the church to to lead in that versus the church leading in what it frequently has historically and even now, which is a, a facade and an appearance that, you know, we have it together. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, so there's an honesty aspect to that. First, you have to be, you know, being really critical and honest with your own heart and asking, you know, God to show that, I think. Yeah, that plus thinking about it through your children's eyes, but not just through your children's eyes, because it, it, the, the same reality applies in terms of, are we being real about this or not? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you, John. I, I think it's critical to see, you know, when we talk about idols, I think it's easy to think, oh, you know, all these areas of my life, I can't love those areas, you know, so I have to try to dampen my love for the, the, the good things in my life that I'm tempted to idolize. And that's not the problem. The problem is not that we love things too much. It's that we love God too little by comparison with those things, if that makes sense. So the problem is not, let me, and I think we often do this, you know, we want to focus on those bad things in our life or if something's an idol, let me get rid of it in my life. And that just cannot work because the problem is not those things. The problem is a lack of worship, passion, trust, love for God himself. That is the whole problem. (laughs) So in order to be set free in these areas, it's got to be about falling in love with Jesus. It's got to be about worshiping him. It's about, it's got to be about growing in that. And I think that's where we often get in trouble, you know, and we, like you, you know, were mentioning in the Bible belt, it's so easy to be deceived in this area because we can think Okay, what do I got to do with God? Okay, well, I got to try to be in church as much as I can. You know, I got to try to read my Bible. I got to try to pray. I got to try to, you know, maybe give to some other people. And then I'm good, all right? So I've satisfied that. Now I can go and live my life, and that's where my real passion is. And so many people in the Bible Belt are living that reality and thinking, I'm good. But they don't love God. He's not their commanding passion. Or they're not even wrestling with that. It's, it's so possible to be religious and yet have no life of God within you. And that, that's, that was at the heart of the ministry of Jesus because he's calling out religious people. He's saying, you're doing a lot of religious stuff, but your heart is far from God. So that's really the heart of the matter is, it, do I worship God? And I think when we start to ask that question, we're like, not a lot. <laughs> so then we can repent and run to Jesus. Does that make sense? So it's... Correct. Yes. Yes, yes. Oh, very easy. I mean, here's why you can't reduce it to a slogan, you know. There's some complexity here. But 
it's not that loving God saves us, right? It's not that worshiping God saves us. None of that saves us. What saves us is the work of Jesus in our place. And I trust that by faith alone, right? It's that worship is the evidence of this transformation in my life. And so for those of us who are in Christ, it's done. We're justified. We're right with God. So I can, love, I can try as hard as I can to love God, and it doesn't make me any more right with Him. But for those of us who are in Christ, the way to grow, the way to find life, the way to flourish is through enjoying Jesus. You know, that is the call. And so easily, even true believers can get off into this kind of shell of religiousness where we're not, our hearts are not being commanded by Jesus. So, yeah, the opposite thing is like, oh, I got to love him enough to be accepted. Now, we can do that with anything. We can turn anything into a work. And that's what we do in our hearts because we don't like grace. Jason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Thank you for sharing that, Jason. And I think it actually makes sin that much more tragic when we start in that way. Like when you start in Genesis 1 and 2 versus Genesis 3, it makes Genesis 3 that much more heartbreaking because it's like, you know, sin is always relational. It's always, it's always a turning from love. It's a turning from the beauty of who we're created to be as the image of God. And I think as we begin to see that more, sin can break our hearts more in a repentant way. You know, like, oh, I've sinned against love versus I've broken a rule. That's probably not going to drive repentance that deep. But I've sinned against the one who loves my soul. That gets it a little bit deeper, (laughs) For sure. Thank you. Anybody else? Yeah. Yep. This is, I mean, I love that you preached on this. And I love what John was after. This is really frustrating. Mm. This is a constant, not only in my own life, but in the lives of others that I'm close to. Yeah. And uh, I think you made a point of what we're called to be and do, and that is, and I would say, daily, even hourly, fresh repentance. Yeah. Coming to a yeah. place where you go, and it's, and it, I don't know, I think it's constantly about surrender. Yeah. It is so hard for us to understand salvation 
and Lord and put those together. Yeah. We're human and, and so even, you know, we, we sit here and talk about, we have those moments like, okay, okay, I'm yeah. going to read more, I'm yeah. going to do, it. again, it's all coming back to our own ability and true surrender is so difficult. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's sometimes painfully. Yeah. And you see it in others' lives that you're walking alongside of. And I don't know. I mean, the Holy Spirit, we have to allow the Holy Spirit to, to work. And we need to be quiet. We really have a difficult time being quiet in our culture anymore. Yeah, yeah. And um, so it's just, it's, it's sometimes it's just heartbreaking. Yeah. In your own heart. So. I think, uh, gosh, it's so true. It's I love your word frustrating. This is frustrating because Israel is us. Like when you come to Jesus, this flesh that is inclined to run after idols doesn't go away. It remains. It's dying. It's being overcome through the power of the Holy Spirit, but it's still there. And so the Christian life is so hard because everything in my heart is mixed. I love God and Love everything else in place of him. And so it makes the Christian life, it makes it hard. It makes it hard to live in community because we're going to like hurt each other because we're sinners. You know, we, we got Israel in our heart, right? But the, the hope is the gospel that through union with Christ and his, you know, it's, the rescue's got to come from the outside and it has in Christ. And so in our struggling, we are struggling as those who've been saved and secured in Christ. And so that changes the battle. We're not struggling to be free. We're set free to be able to struggle. So, yeah. Well, I guess it's kind of the same thing that Greg and you guys are saying, but when you said, you know, you can't just get rid of an idol because another one's just going to pop up. I mean, that's just so true. So instead, you have to have something that's more beautiful and more enticing, and that's Jesus and that's God. Um, and I was like, oh, that's so beautiful and so true. But then why do all the things in this world still feel more beautiful, enticing, and yeah. easy? They're just so easy. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just frustrating. Yeah, it is. It is. Well, let me stop us there. And man, great conversation. A great reason to be in a community group is that you can go deeper in these kind of conversations together and actually work it out specifically in your hearts, which is when it really starts to to get powerful there. So uh, let me close this in prayer, and we'll get the worship team to come up and close us. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that none of what you saw in Judges was ever a surprise to you, and none of what you see in our hearts has ever surprised you. You've seen it all, all the way to the very bottom. And Lord, you chose to come and give your life for us. Father, you determined that you would not abandon your people as faithless and wayward as we can be by nature. And I just praise you that you have rescued us in Christ. And I just pray that each and every person here, that we would just come to rest ourselves more and more deeply in the finished work of Jesus. That Jesus, you would be our hope and you would be our joy. Work in us what is pleasing in your sight. In Christ's name we pray, amen.